I hit a significant milestone in my life this past week. It's pretty open-ended, isn't it? <laughs> well, it was a two-year journey. And, you know, it was a lot of commitment, a lot of hard work. But I made it through. And while it may not be significant to you, it's really significant to me. After two years, I have completed all seven seasons of The West Wing. <laughs> I know, I know, it's a huge deal. And, and you'll have to forgive me to, uh, for venting because there's just a swirl of emotions going on uh, for me right now. Um, and it's what happens after you finish a great story, really. Um, and I want to qualify that if you watch The West Wing, you may not love it. Uh, when, I, when it was first airing, I wasn't old enough to appreciate the show at the time. Uh, but I've since caught up and, and caught up on the thing that I missed out on. And uh, yeah, the show is very dialogue driven. So if you like action, it may not be your thing. Um, it also probably, I mean, the, it, it chronicles the uh, presidency of a Democrat president. So uh, it may irk you on occasion. Uh, I, on occasion, it represented opposing views. Uh, not that charitably, that frustrates me, but overall, I just, I love the show. I think it's really smart, I think it's great writing, I think it's great acting, uh, and it's all in all very wholesome as well, and uh, kind of a picture of what our government should be like. Um, but after two years and seven seasons, it's over, and I knew the ending was coming. But it affected me all the same. And even though I knew the ending was coming, I wanted it to affect me. Like, I am a sucker for sappy, sentimental, gushy endings. Like, pour it on, all right? I want a good cry. I'm saying goodbye. Like, I need this emotional release. And it did not disappoint. But naturally, I, I am an introspective kind of guy. Uh, that means I like to reflect on things. So uh, on the bad side, it means I overthink things and uh, kind of worry myself for no reason. But on the good side, hopefully, it makes me be thoughtful and careful about the things I'm watching or doing. Uh, so I thought, I've, I just finished The West Wing. It's really affected me and impacted me for a story to be over. And being the reflective guy that I am, I, I asked, well, how should, how should this impacting me so much make me feel? Like, what, what should I think of that? Well, sadness over the West Wing ending made me think of the capacity God has given each one of us to connect with other people. I think that's why we're sad when stories end when a show ends or a, a book ends, because we've connected with characters and we're sad to see them go. We're sad to say goodbye. And in turn, that made me think that God has made us not as individuals. Even from the very beginning, God said it's, it's not good for man to be alone. He made us for community. It made me think of God's design, not just in creation, but even in redemption, that God has saved us not as isolated individuals. He saved us as a people. He has saved a people. So thinking how the West Wing, the closing of a story, 
impacted me, it in turn made me think that it should point to and make me long for something even better. And I think any good gift here should make us do that. It should make us think to and, and, and make, point us to an ultimate gift and the ultimate giver. So here I've connected with characters I've watched on a screen. But it made me think of, I get to connect with actual, real people. Not just be a spectator, but actually be a partaker in community. And the ending of this show made me long for, it pointed me to the ending of what's to come for the real people with bonds deeper than a show, but bonds of a common savior. These people, what's to come is not a farewell. What is to come is glory. That's way better. And that's what we long for, isn't it? The ending of a story, even like the West Wing, reminded me of what we were made to be and who we were saved to be, a people, not individuals. And we see the same thing worked out in the book of Galatians. In particularly, the, since the beginning of chapter 5, see that Christ has won our freedom, that he has done it, it's finished. He's given us a new status. But alongside with that new status is a new heart. Not just freed in Christ, but transformed by Christ through his spirit. And this new heart creates a new community. So you have a bunch of people with this new heart. See, community is where the first fruit of the spirit, that love, it's where that's displayed. It's where it's lived out among other people. So we ask today, what kind of community does the Spirit who has made us new, what kind of community does he create for Christ's people? Well, we read of that in the beginning part of Galatians chapter 6. If you're looking at the Red Pew Bible in front of you, like I am, uh, you will find that on page 975. And we're going to start with the last verse of chapter 5 and go through verse 10 of chapter 6, the book of Galatians. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. 
for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who have the household of faith. Main point of this passage, find it printed in your bulletin. The Spirit shapes how Christ's people relate to those inside and outside the household of faith. The result is a community marked by love, service, humility, and perseverance. So we see this progression like we have, we've noticed earlier in chapter 5 and beginning in chapter 6. Christ has freed us. That Christ has worked in us to give us new hearts. Now he calls us to obedience, to continue to follow him among other people. But like last week, following Christ among other people, we confess today, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. We still have desires of the flesh. There are still things that would threaten us living out well the community that God intends for us to be. It's not easy. But we keep going. And we anticipate God's completed work in us that will soon come. So our first major section is a community that overcomes threats. And here, the two major sections, we're going to go over kind of what God calls us to be and the power behind living that out. So first we see we are a community that overcomes threats. And there are at least three threats that we want to highlight. And in the second major section of our time together, we'll see that we are a community that lives in light of what's to come. In that second paragraph of Galatians 6, noticing an ancient principle Paul tells us about that he uses both to warn us and to encourage us. That's the lay of the land going forward. So first major section, a community that overcomes threats. And you'll notice that we're beginning in verse 26, the last verse of chapter 5. And you'll, you may be thinking, as I would think, uh, that this is kind of a weird place to begin. Like, why not just start with verse 1? Well, as a reminder, friends, uh, I hate to burst your bubble or deflate any hopes and dreams that you have, um, but the chapter and verse divisions that we see in our Bibles are not a part of the original text, uh, meaning that they are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Though they are helpful, um, they were added later. So here, we're not starting with verse 1 of chapter 6. We noticed last week, verses 24 and 25 remind us where the victory in our conflict comes from. Remembering that that conflict is between our remaining desires for sin and the spirit God has given us. And victory in that comes from crucifying the flesh as we have been crucified with Christ and continuing to walk in the spirit. So now, beginning in verse 26, Paul begins to show behavior that is inconsistent with walking in the Spirit. There's a shift that happens. So that's really the rationale behind starting in verse 26. And we see immediately the first threat that comes to us, the community that the Spirit indwells and who's been saved by Christ. What would threaten 
living out in the way that God intends for us. Can you spot the the first threat in verse 26? Conceit. The threat of conceit. To me, that seems a really obvious and reasonable threat. Of course, like conceit, yeah. Well, why do we need obvious and reasonable warnings? Well, friends, because so often we are not obvious, we are stubborn, and we are not reasonable, we are unreasonable. Like, I know I shouldn't be a jerk, but every now and then someone should tell me, don't be a jerk. So here, conceit, it's obvious, it's reasonable. But don't be conceited. Paul still says it in verse 26. So the idea behind that word conceited reflects an attitude of thinking that you have a right to praise and renown, but in actuality, you have no such right. Another definition of being conceited is being self-absorbed. And we could see right away that we would think of this as being arrogant or narcissistic. And yes, that is a form of being conceited, absolutely. And we could see very easily how being arrogant or narcissistic would disintegrate community and threaten community. But do you notice the two phrases that come after do not be conceited in verse 26? Provoking one another, envying one another. That would clue us in that conceit shows up in more ways than one. So yes, the conceited person is the one who thinks too highly of himself, who provokes others, who is arrogant, who has a superiority complex, who's drawn to pick arguments all the time. But the conceited person is also the one who envies others who focuses on his low self-esteem, who has an inferiority complex, who doesn't pick arguments but avoids confrontation even when confrontation is necessary. So you think about it. Both the person with the superiority complex and the person with the inferiority complex They both want the same thing. It's just that the person with the superiority complex is convinced that he has that thing. So then the problem, friends, isn't ultimately thinking too highly or too lowly of yourself. The problem is thinking of yourself too much. That's the conceited person. Reminds us of the classic take on humility from C.S. Lewis, who said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You see the difference there? So, this self absorbed conceit, friends, is actually an attitude that the gospel would not lead us to. So the gospel is going to do two things. The gospel, on the one hand, is going to humble us. And it's going to say, you are not impressive. Because you are a sinner. And you are saved only by grace. So do not think too highly of yourself. 
the same time, the gospel lifts us up and says, you are loved and you are counted righteous by the one whose opinion ultimately matters. So friend, would you be tempted to think too highly or too lowly of yourself? Either way, turn your eyes upon Jesus and be humble because only in him you are approved. As you turn your eyes on Jesus, be lifted up because in him you are approved. So the gospel gives us this balance. That's the threat of conceit. But this isn't the only threat that would cause us not to be the community God calls us to be. There's also the threat of sin. We notice that in verse 1. And specifically, this is the threat of sin that is unresolved and sin that needs addressing. And I would wager, friends, that if you spend, I don't know, 10 minutes with other Christians, you will know that this is a threat to community, sin. And here we're not abdicating and saying, all right, we just have to deal with this and sin's always going to be with us. Yes, that's true. What Paul's doing here is saying, all right, sin's a reality and we need to know how to guard against it, how to respond to this threat when it works because it is going to work. So he gives specific instructions for how to not let sin fracture the community of God. We could break it down phrase by phrase, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. You see, he opens up with the word brothers. That word brothers. And right off the bat, we can see how this is a contrast to verse 26. Because when we're conceited, we're tempted to look at others, not as brothers and sisters, but as rivals. So here Paul is right off the bat reorienting the Galatians and saying, you are not rivals, you are brothers and sisters. So friends, not only is Christianity not an individual sport, and it's not even a team sport. Christianity is a family sport. Brothers, if anyone caught in any transgression. Here Paul is laying out a potential scenario. And what is this scenario? Well, look at the context. I think context would help us what this means if anyone is caught in any transgression. We read further on that there is a necessity of restoration. So the fact that restoration is necessary would clue us in to say that whatever this transgression is, it's serious enough to cause some level of disunity, division, or disharmony in the body of Christ. At the same time, the goal or possibility of restoration would lead us to, to say that whatever this transgression is, it's not serious enough that the person is unrepentant and that the person isn't seeking help to get out of the sin they are caught in. So it's unlike what Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 5. 
But a man who sins seriously and does not recognize it and refuses to repent from it. The fact that restoration is possible here means that this person in question must know that they are in sin and must be asking for help. So if that happens, what are we to do? We are to seek their restoration. And who are those who partake in this work? Just call on, plod right along in verse 1. Those who are spiritual. Now this isn't just a a little part of of the community. What did Paul just get talking about in chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit. That's for everybody. So here's what Paul is saying. If you are led and empowered by the Spirit then when your brother is caught up in a transgression, you will have the aim and goal of his restoration. You will want his spiritual good if you are led and empowered by the Spirit. This will be your desire. This is what you should do. And it's interesting, that goal of restoration, that word restore, it's actually used in other settings for setting a bone back in place. I don't, has anybody here ever dislocated their shoulder? We got, oh, got a couple. Got a couple. Does it feel good? All right. That's what I've thought. It's, it doesn't feel good because it's not where the bone is supposed to be. So here we have a brother and sister caught up in any transgression. It's like they're a dislocated bone. It's not natural, so it hurts. But what do you have to do for healing? you got to pop that bone back in. And that does not feel good. But it's what's required for healing. So with this work of restoration, if a brother or sister is caught up in any kind of transgression, they are, on some level, dismembered from the body. There's some level of division. And to set the bone back in place, to restore, it means it will probably be painful. But friends, that's what's required for healing. Naturally, it leads us into how we should do this work. When we look at verse 1. So we should have this goal of us being spiritual, led by the Spirit. We should have the goal of restoring. How should we do it? Well, notice the manner of it in the closing of verse 1. It says, you, should, you who are spiritual should restore him, how? In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we do this work gently and humbly. And when we do this work gently, we are following the example of our Lord. Read the Gospels, and you'll see Jesus knew how to handle those who were stubborn in their sin. Jesus knew how to handle those who refused to acknowledge that they had any problems or their hearts were any at all sinful, but were quick to point out the sins of others. Jesus knew how to handle that crowd. But Jesus also knew how to handle people who were caught up in sin and came to him and said, help me. 
Jesus was gentle with those people. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So here we have a possible scenario. A brother or sister asking for help, caught up in a transgression, and needs help to get back out, needs help to be put back in place. And our default response cannot be, must not be, anger or outrage. We have plenty of that going on right now. Our default response to that kind of situation rather must be gentleness. It must be grace. Those who have received much. But neither should our default response to a situation like this be self-righteousness. Be saying, how could you do this? I would never do that. That must not be our response. Our response must be humility. Humility to admit, to be aware that we are capable of sin just as much as our brother or sister. So here we have the response to this threat that would keep us from being the community that God causes us to be, that the Spirit creates for Christ's people, the threat of sin. And in response to sin, we treat sin seriously enough to address it, to seek restoration. But at the same time, we do this in a manner of gentleness, seeking the person's good and with a humble awareness that we need grace just as much and that we, just like them, are also sinners. Well, there's one more threat. Verse 2. So we've seen the threat of conceit, the threat of sin, also the threat of burdens. And here, in response to the threat of burdens, we see a threefold response. And I apologize if you are taking notes. I got subpoints within subpoints here. Um, get with me afterwards if you need to clarify things. Hopefully it's clear now. The threat of burdens. In light of burdens, the first fold, bear them. That's the simple, straightforward command. In light of burdens, bear them. And really, helping others get out of their sin is, is one way of bearing burdens. But this extends to all challenges and all the brokenness of the fallen world that we live in. Friends, we live in a world where work is hard. Where responsibilities are often overwhelming. We live in a world with sleepless nights. A world where relationships and hearts are broken. We live in a world where cancer is a, is a thing. We live in a world with chemotherapy. We live in a world of, of poverty and, and hunger and thirst. We live in a world of injustice, things going swept under the rug. We live in a world where desires go unmet. We live in a fallen world. We have plenty of burdens. In response to our weary load, our heavy load of burdens, Jesus says, 
put them on me. We read that amazing verse earlier. 1 Peter 5 says, Cast all your cares on the Lord, for he cares for you. All your burdens, all your anxieties. So here we mesh, we mesh 1 Peter 5 with Galatians 6, 2. And we see that one of the ways God carries our burdens is through the help of other people. That's one of his tools. So, friends, we have to get real for a second. We need each other's help. We need others to help us carry our burdens. That's the response to this threat. In loving one another in this way, loving one another enough to get in the mud and help, that's the fulfillment of the law of Christ. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The law of Christ. You notice the big difference here is that the law here is focused not on a set of rules. The law here is focused on a person. When we follow the law of Christ, we are following a person. And this person, the Son of God, would lead us to bear one another's burdens. Why? Because he bore our burdens. In light of burdens, we bear them. But there's something that would keep us from this work. And Paul highlights this from verses 3 to 5. In light of burdens, we bear them. But in light of burdens also, we don't be insulated. In light of burdens, don't be insulated. In verse 3, Paul says, We will not do this work of bearing burdens if we think we are something. If we think of we are something, we will be above needing help and we will be above giving help. When would we think we are something? Verse 4. We would think we are something when we compare ourselves to others. Here we have again the heart of the conceited person. Being obsessed with how you measure up so that you have to look to other people to bolster your view of yourself. That's using other people for selfish purposes. That's not bearing their burdens. Not only is viewing people in this way, using people in this way, selfish Friends, it's also misguided. That's what Paul indicates at the end of verse 4 and beginning in verse 5. Using people as tools to justify yourself or find worth is acting as if you will stand before God with a group of people and he will rank who's the best and who's the worst based on comparisons to themselves. That's hoping God is the bad grader that I wished for in my classes. Whenever I took online classes, the first assignment, I would kind of size everything up. See, all right, what's the level we're working at here? And if I can get a good grade in comparison to this, maybe I don't have to put forth all my effort. That's what this way of thinking is hoping that God is. But God does not judge us based on comparison to others. We will stand before God and he will judge us based on comparison to himself. 
So friends, don't do now what you won't be able to do then. Do not justify yourself or find your worth by comparing yourself to others. No, look to God. Compare yourself to God and then be straight up and realize your utter unworthiness and see your sin. And then fly to Christ. Then stand in Jesus who lived without sin, who paid the penalty for your sin. And then that frees you no longer to use others to bolster yourself. That frees you to look to other people as people. There's one more fold. Again, verse 6. Yes, we stand before God on our own. But it's as if verse 6 comes along and Paul reminds us that God has put others in our lives to help us. Paul reminds us that Christians are not self-made. They are products of God's grace. And God's grace uses other people to help us. So in light of burdens, don't forget you've been helped. In light of burdens, don't forget that you've been helped. Specifically, those those, uh, who Paul is highlighting here are those who help us by teaching us. And Paul, uh, what's behind this verse is that Christians are not self-made. And also, Paul tells of the principle that Jesus says and the Bible says that it is especially good for certain individuals to devote themselves to helping their fellow Christians through teaching. And in order to fully devote themselves to this work of teaching, it will help them to be supported, to share all good things with them. Most specifically, rubber hits the road, financial support. Now, that's always weird for me to preach a verse like that. And I want to say I am so thankful that I get to be devoted and that I'm supported to teach and to do this work And here, even this passage, this verse here, would clue us in that this is not some impersonal exchange of goods. That church is not like your auto shop where you pay for a service. No, the relationship between teacher and disciple is a relationship. So here, this this word, share all good things, it relates to the word used for fellowship, koinonia. So it's not an impersonal exchange of goods. This is a loving relationship of burden-bearing. Those who help one another. So, friends, we walk in a war zone. And as we walk in the war zone, there are many landmines. And here, Paul highlights just a few of them. And the only way to walk together, to follow Christ, is with God's help through his spirit. The only way we overcome the threats of conceit, of sin, and of burdens 
is if we walk by the Spirit. But this is a war zone. Where do we get strength to keep going? Why should we keep walking? The answer may surprise you. The answer may sound a little funny. We get the strength to keep going by remembering an ancient agricultural principle. Remembering this principle brings us to our second major section, a community that lives in light of what's to come. It'll be much briefer. So we could trace Paul's flow of thought to verse 7. So he's just finished promoting good relationships between teachers and disciples. And it's as if this jolts his memory. He says, oh yeah, there are some bad teachers in Galatia. I should warn them again about them. There are bad teachers in Galatia that would lead them away from trusting in Jesus alone as their Savior and would lead them to trusting in Jesus and themselves as their Savior's. So here's one last appeal. And the appeal comes with an ancient agricultural principle in verse 7. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And it makes sense, right? If you decided to sow, I don't know, whatever you need, I don't know if it's seeds, for Brussels sprouts. And friend, I do not know why you would want to grow Brussels sprouts, okay? This is a sign of the fall. If you decide you want to grow Brussels sprouts, you won't get tulips. If, in fact, if you get tulips, you should call National Geographic or something. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. Paul uses this as a warning. Because people don't think this is true. People deceive themselves about this thinking that they can sow bad seed and expect good results. It's like thinking, all right, I can just look at my notes five minutes before the test and still get an A. It's like the attitude of, yeah, well, I care about God. You know, me and God are good. But, you know, I'm going to do my own thing pretty much. Um, I, I will, I'll go to church every now and then. Uh, but ultimately, just life is short, and I work really hard. Uh, so I just, every night, I just deserve to indulge. This is the attitude of sowing bad seed. It's a, it plagues areas like this. People call it moral therapeutic deism. Keeping God as your butler. Making, using God to make you feel good. To make you feel moral. And using him only when you need him. People convince themselves that they can sow seeds of careless, selfish sin and expect bountiful harvest. And if you think that's you this morning, you should know that that's, that's a misguided way of thinking. But you should also know that there is a better way of living and that Jesus extends his hand. So here is the warning. The warning is that the harvest will come for this. There's the danger of sowing bad seed. The danger of it is that the harvest is delayed. The harvest is delayed. So you can convince yourself that you are okay. I'm fine. My life is totally fine. In fact, I'm not even hurting anybody. 
the warning is, friends, you are hurting yourself. Sin seems like a good idea now. But I promise it won't be a good idea later. It's a warning that its end is corruption. So that means it's a mercy if we get to see some of that harvest now. That it's a mercy if we sow to to the flesh and to sin. If we get a sneak preview and discover that sin does not satisfy or give ultimate life or ultimate joy. It's a mercy that sin finds us out here instead of finding us out before God. The harvest that sin will bring will come. That's the warning. But also, he uses the same principle, not just as a warning, but also as an encouragement. The strength to keep going in this war zone. That the harvest for continuing to hold on to Christ, meaning to do the things he calls us to do, to continue in this work of overcoming the threats of sin and conceit and burdens. Continuing in this work, holding on to Christ. Where does the strength for that come from? It comes from knowing that the harvest is coming. It comes from living in light of what's to come. So we would be tempted to, to grow weary for the same reason that the person who sows to sin is tempted to think that they are fine. And that's because the harvest is delayed. So the harvest is delayed, so it brings us fatigue. It it makes us doubt. It makes us impatient. But we rest and know that the harvest is coming. Because we know that the one who was slain for us is the one who rose again in victory. That secures the knowledge that the harvest is coming. That eternal life is our end. Because Jesus rose again. Because the tomb is empty. So, friends, what would, what would make you grow weary in continuing to hold on to Christ? Would it be another difficult day at home? Would it be another day without a spouse? Would it be Another shift at a job you really don't like. Do not grow weary in holding on to Christ there. Because the harvest is coming. The real life situation of bearing burdens, looking to Christ, finding strength in one another comes from the pilgrims. Plymouth Rock, actually a familiar story. They landed there in winter of 1620. They weren't supposed to get there in winter. And their leader, William Bradford, writes this. What was most sad was that in two or three months' time, half of their company died, especially in January and February, being the depth of winter and lacking houses and other comforts, being infected with the scurvy and other diseases which this long voyage and their difficult condition had brought upon them. So as there died, sometimes two or three per day during this time, 
Of 100 or so persons, scarce 50 remained. And of these, in the times of most distress, there were only six or seven healthy persons who, to their great commendations, spared no pains night or day, but with the abundance of toil and hazard of their own health, fetched them wood, made them fires, prepared them food, made their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed and unclothed them, in a word, performed all the homely and necessary services for them with dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to be heard. And all this willfully and cheerfully, without any grudging in the least, showing their true love for their friends and brethren, a rare example and worthy to be remembered. A source of endurance. A source of walking in this war zone together is the assurance of what is to come because we are assured that Jesus bore our burdens that we bear one another's. We are assured that the harvest is coming. And it may be that we get some signs of the harvest here. Maybe generations down the line, like the pilgrims here, would see how the fruit of the gospel would spread. But even if we don't get signs of the harvest here, we do not grow weary. So the full harvest is coming. So especially here among one another, this place, we do not grow weary. Because we endure and renew our strength for he who promised is true. So in light of this whole passage, we remember following Jesus is hard. Grace is free. Repentance is costly. Following Jesus is hard. There are many landmines. But we aren't left alone in this. Following Jesus is hard. Oh, but friends, it is worth it. Because the harvest is coming. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your work for us. We ask that you would strengthen us. You would strengthen us to overcome the threats that would seek to undo us, seek to divide us, seek to bear us down, just to overcome conceit, to overcome sin when we are struggling in it, to overcome the many burdens of this world. And would we do this in the strength that you who promised is true, that what is to come is eternal life, and this is secure, and nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it's his, in his name we pray. Amen.